You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hello and welcome everyone. It's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, the author of Exit, Healthy, Wealthy and Wise, and partner at Freedom Business Advisors. Today's guest is Chris Mercer. If you don't know Chris, he is synonymous with valuation. Chris has been working with business owners and their advisors for over 30 years and is now focused on helping his fellow baby boomer business owners through his firm, Mercer Capital. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Noah. Glad to be here. So I got a copy of your book in my hands, Unlocking Private Company Wealth. I love it. I love the concept of the 1% solution you have in here and, and really the core thesis, which is privately held businesses need to manage their business the same way that they look at their portfolio and the valuation of their company. Where did you come up with this idea and did I encapsulate it well enough for you? Well, I came up with the idea a number of years ago. We value, in the normal course of business, a fairly large number of asset management firms. And that's a very nice business model because they charge fees for managing the fund, retirement funds or other funds, based upon a percentage of the assets under management. One day, I was thinking about the fact that business owners begrudge spending almost anything, or in many cases begrudge spending almost anything, on managing the wealth in their business. I'm not talking about managing the business because we all have to manage our business. What dawned on me is that if we allocated a percentage of the value of our business to create the budget to manage the wealth in the business, and that's to do the estate planning and to buy the life insurance and to get the appraisals and to do whatever else needs to be done. And I make a long list of those kinds of activities in the book. But if we allocate that budget, then we create the opportunity for some real planning. I think that the wealth in private businesses should be managed with the same degree of intensity and respect that is accorded to retirement funds and other liquid assets by the money management industry. So I said 1%. 1% of assets under management is fairly typical for an equity manager. So I called it the 1% solution. That's where the concept came from. In 2007, I was asked, I talked about that in a speech, the 1% solution, but just in passing, and a gentleman asked me if I could give a speech on that topic alone, the 1% solution. And I said, well, yes, I will. And I'll write a little booklet that we can hand out to everybody who's there. And I called it the 1% solution. We have distributed several thousands of those. And it's been an interesting little piece to have. I decided to write the second edition of the 1% solution. And when I sat down to begin to write it, I realized that I needed to write a little bit more than just a really about a 15-page uh, overview of managing private company wealth. 
the end result is unlocking private company wealth, which incorporates the 1% solution in the first section. So that's kind of where the book came from, and that's what the general concept is all about, managing wealth in private businesses. And what would you say are the challenges that entrepreneurs face when thinking about ways to manage their wealth in their business? Well, one of the biggest challenges is overcoming inertia. It is very easy to stay busy in your business and not focus on the important things that need to happen. I talk about in the book, I talk about a concept of uh, think about where you are right now in your business if you're a business owner. Just think about that, where you are right now, where your business is, and I call that now the current status quo. And then I introduce the idea of thinking about the end game. That is, where are you trying to get with your business and what would be a desirable outcome in terms of a third-party sale, internal management transition, or gifting or sale to children, whatever the case might be. But think about the end game. Now, the time in between, I'll call that the interim time. The interim time is a time when we're all busy running our businesses, and it's really easy day by day, week by week, month by month, not to do some of the kinds of things that are important to do if we want to manage wealth. And some of those things are just looking at your wealth as an investment. Most business owners can't tell you what kind of rate of return they get on their investment in their business. And that's the biggest asset in their portfolio. They know to the tenth of a percentage point what their profit sharing plan returned last year or what funds that they have with another asset manager have returned because they think about those things but they don't think about the return on the biggest asset. And they don't think about what they can do to liquefy some of that wealth before you end up selling it, maybe, and then diversifying and uh, creating a a much more diversified portfolio so that over time, in many businesses, if owners focus on it, they can become wealthy independently of the business. And when they do that, then they have true independence and wealth. When dealing with that specific issue of diversifying outside of the business Mm -hmm. and monitoring the wealth inside the business, the owners that I talk to, you know, they seem so laissez-faire about what the business is worth because they say, well, it's not for sale. And so I'm measuring how much money do I get out of the business. That's my own barometer. What do you have to say to them? Well, what I have to say is it matters what your business is worth. It matters that you take care to uh, diversify while you can, because uh, think about this. You've been involved with many business owners. I've been involved with many. Most of the time when a company sells, most of the time when a company sells, the owner did not have a conscious plan to sell the company six months or a year before the sale occurred. An unexpected something came along, something triggered, and there was an adverse event at the company that forced a sale, had a change of heart, All kinds of things happen to create something unexpected. Well, bad things happen even to good companies, and it's not my advice to any business owner to leave all of the eggs in that same basket until some indeterminate time in the future when you hope that you have a successful exit. Yeah, and have you seen that play out? Can you share a story where somebody came to you after an aftermath and said, you know, Chris, is there any way you can help me pick up the pieces? I have a better story than that. It happened before. A number of years ago, uh, about 13 years ago, we were talking with a company in the aircraft interior business. 
they refitted aircraft interiors, and they had a booming little business. They called us to talk about our representing them to sell the company. And so we prepared an engagement letter. We talked to them. They said uh, it's a go, but they waited almost six months before they signed the engagement letter so that we could get started. We executed a process that was as rapid as possible. We had interested buyers in the company, and we were down to one small due diligence question that was going to be fairly easy to resolve. The buyer came to the company. We came, we met, uh, we pretty much resolved that issue. And then a few days later, two aircraft slammed into the towers in New York City. Okay? Well, six months later, this company was bankrupt because its business was gone. So my point is that, and this is just a, a dramatic example to emphasize the case, these guys uh, waited until it was too late. My advice to business owners is don't wait until it's too late to diversify and to work on the business. That doesn't mean you're selling the business necessarily. Maybe that means you're focused on dividend or distribution policy. But do things that you can while you can, because when it's too late, Noah, it's too late. It's yeah. just like, you know, you want to get a financing to do something. Well, if financing's available, that's good. If the company's doing well, that's good. But if you wait until the day after the market shuts down, it's too late. You won't get the financing. If you wait until something bad happens to your company's performance, it's too late. You won't get the financing. So it's my belief, and I've, the belief is based upon my personal experience at Mercer Capital and interviewing and talking with and working with many, many business owners over the last 30 plus years, that it is far better when business owners focus on the inevitable transitions that are going to occur in management and ownership and plan and plan to diversify while they can. You know, a, a, a good example of a potential for diversification would be a leveraged dividend. So, yeah, why don't you explain that concept? I, I find most owners have a very limited understanding of the capital structure in their company, yes. and they, they know they could go to the bank for debt if they're going to buy something or they need money, but they don't really grasp the concept of going to the bank to get money that they're going to take out of the company. The concept is really very simple. You have a company that's profitable that in many cases is under leveraged, maybe has no leverage at all. You have no desire to sell the business or that the owner has no desire to sell the business, wants to run the business, wants to continue to grow the business. One of the things that you can do is go to the bank and borrow, and let's just say, just make the number real, borrow $5 million or $10 million, depending upon what your EBITDA is, but maybe two or three times EBITDA, borrow that money, pay it out as a special dividend, as a leveraged dividend. You're recapitalizing the company with debt, you have money that you take outside of the bank, I mean, outside of the company. You can diversify with that. You have liquidity outside of the company. You have a company that is not over leveraged, and you have a bank that's happy because they're lending to you instead of holding cash for you. So they make more money that way. So the idea of a leveraged dividend recap is not something that I made up or something that's new. If you read about private equity in America, you know that they've had a hard time selling some of their five, six, seven, eight-year-old investments where they like, typically like to diversify every five to seven years. What have they done? 
They have, when they couldn't find an acceptable selling price, they have gone to a bank or gone to financing, obtained financing, paid out leveraged dividends, provided funds to return to their investors, and then they still have a good investment. The idea is, I tell company managements that it is a bad thing to keep cash in the company. They say, I want to keep cash for a rainy day. Well, you don't keep cash in the company for a rainy day. At least, I don't think you should. Take that money out. Take it out and diversify with it. If you have a great investment opportunity, you can always put it back in the company. But it's always a good idea to get assets out of the company. The interesting thing about a leveraged dividend recapitalization, for example, is that the return on equity goes up. Your equity goes down. Your earnings go down a little bit because you don't have earnings on the cash that you have. You're paying interest on the debt, but your return on equity goes up. And as you pay down that debt, your return on the investment that remains in the business is is accelerated significantly. So it's all about managing wealth, get money outside so you can diversify your portfolio so that you can become independent of the business, where you can, one of your options then becomes, I will be an investor owner. That is an option that most owners never think about. I've brought this idea to a variety of clients, and I've had a difficult time getting buy-in, because what I found is that there's this emotional attachment to being debt-free. And at least the companies that I've spoken to about this, they essentially had no debt on the books. Maybe they had a little working line of credit for some seasonality, but you know, there's no, no real debt on their company. It's like a badge of honor. And my attitude is, you know, I think it's a badge of poor management. And so there's this conflict inherent between a financial mind like yours or mine that says, wait a minute, you know, if we insert some leverage, we get the capital structure more efficient, we're going to have a higher return on equity, we could take the proceeds and invest them outside this company. And even if we don't exceed the cost of capital, then we still have these benefits of diversification. Exactly. But owners, at least the owners I'm talking to, and, you know, kind of in this lower end of the middle market, people whose companies are worth five to $100 million, it's been a struggle for me to get this education and get over this emotional hurdle the same way it is for people that like to pay down their house, you know, and, and have the house paid off. Sure. Well, it's all a matter of managing wealth to me. And my question to the business owner who has no debt, who may be, in many cases, accumulating cash or other excess assets, securities, a portfolio, what the economic effect of that behavior is to continually drive down the return on equity or the return on the owner's investment. Now, if that's what the owner wants and that's what makes him comfortable, I guess that's okay. But management comfort is not a reason to keep cash. The owner in that situation needs to separate himself, separate his roles between that of a manager and that of an owner. As an owner, he would want some reasonable amount of leverage. As a manager, maybe he's comfortable with the cash on the balance sheet or the accumulation of cash. I've uh, been working with a client. I think maybe this year it will happen. Uh, I have been asking them to consider a significant leveraged a dividend recapitalization for, I guess, three years now. This is, yeah. Maybe this is the fourth year. It's an ideal candidate. They've been paying down debt almost to the point where they're debt-free and accumulating cash. Return on equity has been driven down. This is the case where some, a modest amount of debt with the payment of cash out could create independence for the owners, independent of the business forever, and they still have the business. Yeah. 
And I think the owners are maybe finally coming around. So it's not necessarily an easy talk, but you have to have that. We as advisors, I think, uh, have to have that kind of conversation. I explained to them that I feel a responsibility to them to make that opportunity available to them. The leveraged dividend recap is maybe, at least in my mind, a tougher discussion than implementing a dividend policy. And I think one of the things you do eloquently in the book is lay out all the positive attributes of companies implementing a dividend policy. Just anecdotally, you know, I was in a CPA firm. I was a partner in a CPA firm, which my father was the founder of. And I never understood why he didn't get a dividend. And I used to beg him, you know, to start paying a dividend separate from compensation because then the ownership would have value. And, you know, he never listened to that advice. But now in one of the privately held businesses that I own, we're out of the gate and in a position where I want to pay the dividend. And so I've told the CEO he's got the first dividend payment coming up on January 15th. And he's feeling the pressure. And I said, you know, it's exactly what it's there to do is I I want you to have to make capital allocation decisions with pressure and not feel like there's all this free cash flow that you could readily reinvest. So why don't you just share a story with me of some companies that implemented a dividend policy and, and the impact it had on the family and the owners themselves. One of my early clients, and going back to the 1980s, late 1980s, was a company that was an auto parts supplier. They had been growing fairly rapidly, and uh, the owner, the primary owner of the company, had brought his sons into ownership of the business. He called me up one day, and he was ahead of me in this regard, and he said, I'm thinking about uh, implementing a dividend policy, and I want your help in deciding what that dividend policy should be. Well, Noah, I didn't know much about dividend policy at the time, so I began to read everything that I possibly could and looked at some public companies, and they were paying a dividend that average yield about maybe 2.5%. He was growing a little more rapidly, and so I came back with this miraculous recommendation for a policy. Why don't you pay a dividend of 1.5% of value? We were valuing the company every year for the family, for planning purposes, and because this owner wanted to measure his progress in, in his company. So they implemented that policy of a 1.5% dividend. I think the dividend at that time was about $300,000. And what that did was it created the opportunity for his sons to begin to diversify in their ownership and for him to begin to diversify in their ownership. And they maintained a, a similar dividend policy until they sold the company in the 1990s. That experience made me realize that every company has a dividend policy. It may be that I'm not going I'm going to ignore dividends and not pay them, but that's a policy. Not a very good one maybe, but I make the point in the book that every company has a dividend policy. So why not have one that helps drive value? If you pay a dividend and on a regular basis and do not uh, accumulate excess assets, number 1, your return on equity will be good. Number 2, if you get that cash out of the company, and it's not part of working capital on a regular basis, if and when you sell the company, you won't be arguing over whether that cash is needed in working capital or not. So to the owner that wants comfort for cash on the balance sheet, I would just say that they are setting up a future discussion to discount that cash on the part of buyers because the buyer will want that cash in working capital so that they can pay it out and pay off debt dollar for dollar. Yeah. But I think that the dividend policy is critical for service companies. 
you said, Dad, why don't you pay a dividend? Because uh, if there's a dividend, then someone could buy that dividend stream and pay something for it. But that's what I call identifiable earnings, the earnings over and above compensation that is paid pro rata to ownership. And when those earnings are clear, then you've created transferable value, which is another concept in the book. It's uh, value to an owner Maybe you know this company may be priceless for emotional reasons, for ego reasons, or whatever. But unless it has value that is transferable, unless it has value that somebody else will pay for, then it it really doesn't have the kind of value that's going to create independence or a good end game. And what do you think of you know transferable value? How would you define that different than a valuation, or is it one and the same? In a typical company, value is uh, fairly clear. We would normalize salaries. We would create a value, and then the owner, if he sold the business, would be contractually bound to keep the salary that was normalized. Where this issue is really critical is in all kinds of service-related companies where people do crazy things like pay out all the earnings so as not to pay any taxes. Well, a better policy would be to be sure in service companies that we have a clear distinction between return on labor and return on capital. Because if you have clearly distributable earnings that are over and above all labor costs, then those earnings are identifiable and they can be capitalized. If you don't have those numbers, then you're arguing over what those numbers should be. Or if you want to make an internal transfer, then there are no earnings really for someone to buy. So you may, not, you may have eliminated the possibility of an internal transfer by not separating return on labor from the return on capital or ownership. Well, my advice to family businesses is to do the same thing when they have you know, family members that are shareholders and employees, and perhaps they have family members that are shareholders but not employees, and essentially it's creating the same distinction so that people understand what is the compensation for their effort and what is their reward for ownership. Because without that distinction, there's a high probability of family dispute. Well, in many family businesses, the people who are in the company may have a tendency to think that because of their efforts, the company is so valuable, as opposed to thinking that because of the investment of my other family members, I'm able to run this successful company. Right. And so they want to take uh, non-pro rata benefits out of the company. Well, those non-pro rata benefits, excess salary, for example, for an owner running a business over and above normalized compensation is really a non-pro rata return to one shareholder. And there's no wonder when that happens that the out the shareholders who are not working in the company feel wronged. So, you know, it's just one of those things where in a family business there is a clear distinction between the return on labor and market wages are paid to the people who are, have jobs in the business, and then return on capital, which is a pro rata distribution to all of the shareholders. When that occurs, generally speaking, you don't have those issues. You share a lot of stories in the book about companies that did different things to manage their private wealth. Why don't you share one or two of those stories that you want to make sure all of our listeners hear? Okay. A number of years ago, one of our guys went to visit a regular client, and this regular client was uh, somewhat frustrated. His wife was on his case because they had very little liquid wealth outside of the business. His business ownership interest was probably worth $35 million at the time. 
he was a controlling shareholder, but not the total shareholder of this business. And so in his frustration, I had talked to him about this a few years before, and he remembered that when my guy was down there uh, that, that year a few years ago. And they got us together. My guy got us together on the phone, and we talked. And so I went, I'll call his name Norm. Norm and I got together, and basically, I said, Norm, we'll work together, and we need to accomplish a few things. Norm was in his late 70s. So his interim time was not that long. But I said, number one, we'll hire a chief operating officer. And he made a search, and we got some help, and he hired a COO. That was good for help training his children to help manage the business, who were in the business. Number two, we converted him from a C corporation to an S corporation, which was wonderful because they had an ESOP that owned maybe, say, 20% of the company. So that was a a brand new cash flow stream to the ESOP. The CFO still loves me. I said, we need to do a leveraged share repurchase and buy some of your stock to get $10 million was his number, $10 million net of taxes out of the business. And so we went to the bank, had a cooperative regional bank, arranged a financing that was workable and and did a leveraged recapitalization, uh, bought back a portion of his stock, got his $10 million out of the business. Fast forward a few years, the debt's all paid down. They had repurchased some stock, so his ownership position came back close to where it was before. So when he died a couple of years ago, his wife was secure, the business was in a good shape, and he had done a good job in that short interim period of working with us and with a number of other advisors to make all of those things happen. But he could have just run the company and never had the money outside. He could have just done a lot of things, but he did a small handful of things that made a huge difference in his endgame. And that's what I'm really suggesting to business owners today and, and to advisors who talk to business owners. Have these kinds of conversations because it does make a difference. There is no question that it made a difference in this company's value and in this family's uh, diversification. His wife is independent of the company. Uh, the company continues to do well, fortunately, and it's being run by one of the children. That's great. None of those things would have happened if we hadn't had that conversation. And it's like you said, these may seem like big changes, you know, taking on debt, or, but the reality is they're very, in, you know, small, slight changes in the way people do business, and they open up worlds of opportunity. Right, and I will say this. I would never recommend that a private company take on uh, four times, five times, six times EBITDA debt to engage in these kinds of transactions. I would much rather take on two to three times a reasonable amount of leverage, get that taken care of, and then do it again over time, as opposed to putting the company at perhaps undue risk. Yeah. Well, what would you like to leave our listeners with before we end today's podcast? Well, I would leave with the idea that if you're a business owner or if you're an advisor to a business owner who's uh, talking to business owners, think about where you are today, your current status quo. And then if you're an advisor to a business owner, talk to the business owner about what his or her end game really is and try to get that picture because reaching that successful result will occur in the interim between those times, in the future time that I call the interim time. And literally one or two or three decisions that are effectively implemented can make a huge difference, as in the example of Norm that I just talked about, in the family's wealth, in 
the position of the company and just in terms of overall happiness, because once that deal was done, his wife was secure, that she didn't have to worry about a thing regardless of what happened to the company. And that's what I call independence. Yeah. So I I would leave, think about now, think about then, and think about the two or three things that need to happen. And maybe it's the implementation of a dividend policy that keeps on. It's not necessarily just one or two things, but it's what am I going to do to make me able to, I guess, dance in the end game or dance in the end zone? Right. There's a book, Dance in the End Zone by Patrick Ungeschick. It's a beautiful image, though. You want to be dancing at your end game. You no doubt about be dancing it. at your end game. So, Chris, if people would like to seek your wise counsel or find out more information about the variety of books you've written and papers you've written, how should they get in touch with you? Anyone can call me at 901-685-2120. A good place to go would be my blog at chrismercer.net, www.chrismercer.net. Of course, Mercer Capital's website. And my email is mercerc at mercercapital.com. I answer all calls and I answer all emails. Terrific. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. To all our listeners, please stay tuned for more great guests. Feel free to rate us on iTunes, share your feedback with us on Divestopedia, or send me an email, noah at freedomadv.com, if you have a suggestion for a guest. Thanks again, and hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.